You're listening to a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast. This is an Allied Health and Nursing Education Outreach Program podcast in collaboration with the Education Hub at the Royal Children's Hospital. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Virginia Beckerman, and I'm one of the nurse educators in the Allied Health and Nursing Education Outreach Program. And I'm delighted to be here this afternoon with Kim Price and Tyler Hindman. Kim and Tyler are both clinical nurse educators in the emergency department here at the Royal Children's Hospital. And today we're going to give you some hot tips and tricks on triaging children and recognising a very unwell child. So hi, Kim and Tyler, and, and thank you very much for joining me here today. Hi, Jen. Hi, Virginia. How are you going? Good. It's great to be here. And as Tyler just mentioned, um, my nickname is Jin, so you're most likely to hear me refer to that as we go throughout our podcast today. So, Kim, I'm going to start off with you. Uh, and in Australia, we're aware of the Australasian triage scale, the ATS, and this is the urgency of triage categories. And the triage categories themselves are the same for adults and children. However, one of the common questions we get about triaging children is simply, how do you know when they're really unwell? So could you suggest a few red flags that identify a sick child for yourself? Thanks, Virginia. That's a really great question and definitely one that gets commonly asked. One of the messages that always springs to mind when I think about identifying a sick child is that general aspects of the child's behaviour and appearance provide the best indication of whether a serious bacterial infection is likely. This message is documented in the RCH Febrile Child um, Clinical Practice Guideline and it's something that I incorporate into all my paediatric assessments including triage. I believe the triage assessment really starts from the moment that the child arrives um, with their parent or guardian and And I think I look at behavior and observe how they walk or are being carried into the triage room. So things I look for, are they walking independently or are they being carried? Um, Are they looking around or do they appear quite quiet or subdued? Are they crying? Is the crying consolable or is it high pitched? Are they vigorous or do they appear quite flat or lethargic? If they are walking, I will look at how they're mobilizing. So is it independent or are they guarding or is there any limping? I suppose the next thing I look at is pallor. And, you know, I'm thinking, do they look pale? For neonates and young children that may present in a pram or a carrier, you often can't see them until they come into the triage room. Um, Often they're well wrapped up, you know, because parents want to keep them warm. Um, And they may have a blanket or a muslin kind of over the the pram, so they can be difficult to see. So as I'm introducing myself, I always ensure that I eyeball the patient just to check that they're pink and, and breathing. I do this really within the first few seconds of them entering the triage room. I want to ensure that I haven't missed anything and that it's safe to continue with the triage assessment. I suppose this particular group, um, neonates um, in particular, their condition can change quite quickly and may not necessarily be, you know, recognised by a worried or sleep deprived parent. I think making the decision to come um, to bring a newborn to the ED is not one that people take lightly. And I really want to ensure that I've kind of looked at them quickly just to make sure that we're safe to proceed with the rest of the assessment. The other group that may pose a challenge are those with chronic illness um, or conditions and assessing behaviour and pallor in these children can be challenging. I often have to engage with parents um, or the guardian just to see what their normal colour or, or behaviour is. And I do have to trust my own judgment in these circumstances. And although I liaise with the parents and the guardian, I will do my own assessment and, and um, allocate a triage category accordingly. I suppose a valuable assessment tool I regularly use is the central cap refill time. 
And I find that this is a quick assessment and it's a good indicator of circulatory perfusion. When coming to the hospital, children can be tearful, crying. They could be crying because they're afraid or in pain or unwell, could be hungry. (laughs) (laughs) They may not want to cooperate with assessments um, or answer any questions. And this makes assessment difficult um, and it makes maybe recording an accurate heart rate, for example, challenging. So I think um, assessing a central cap refill and ensuring that it's less than two seconds um, really reassures my assessment. Fantastic. Thank you, Kim. And thank you for highlighting those key groups. Tyler, I wonder if there is anything else in particular that you'd like to add? Yeah, I'm just going to reinforce a lot what Kim um, mentioned before. Uh, I keep it really simple. I ask myself, is the child well or unwell? And I guess that's the question we're all wanting to know. So my triage starts again from when they first walk in the door. I want to know if they've been carried in, just like Kim mentioned before. Um, particularly if they're coming in with some sort of um, febrile or viral or sort of weird illness, I want to see them weight-bearing. So I like to see them actually walking and assess, you know, are they able to weight-bear? Because to me, that's a red flag. I try to pick up all these red flags here. So I often start with what I can see and I want to know how interactive the child is. So if they're afraid of what I'm about to do and how I'm going to assess them and how I am in the room... To me, that's quite reassuring. The reason I'm reassured by that is that children who are flat and lethargic at home, it's understandable because they're quite comfortable in their own environment. But when you bring them out into a new environment, like a busy triage uh, and a new person and all this new paraphernalia, particularly with all the PPE, if they're worried about what I'm about to do, that's a good indication that they're in the first instance okay. If they're flat and lethargic while being in the triage room and when I'm assessing them and they don't really care what I'm doing, that's a red flag. I then look at their um, work of breathing. So I like to keep them in the parents' arms and get them to lift up their top and have a look if there's any work of breathing going on or if they have a particularly high respiration rate. Then I also look at their color, like Kim said, and I think that the CRT is fantastic really simple easy way put your finger on the central chest for five seconds and then we should be expecting under two seconds it's a collective group on all of those appearance work of breathing and circulation so those are the key things I look for fantastic thank you so much to both of you for your detailed and excellent answer to that question so let's kick right along and we'll leave it to the end to do some key recaps of today's session so Tyler I'm gonna flip to you now and I think some of the challenges that nurses face especially in regional and rural settings or in mixed departments, EDs, um, is an inconsistency in the frequency and how often they're seeing children. And so I wonder what some tools or resources you might recommend for nurses who are either A, unfamiliar with triaging children or B, still increasing their experience in triaging children. Yeah, with yourself, Chin, we've both worked in outreach education as as well as Kim, actually. Um, We've all done um, mixed CDs and elements of peripheral and rural hospitals. And we know what an incredible job that they do with the lack of resources they do have. So I think that they need to realise that they do a great job. We're very lucky in our hospital because we are geared up for zero to 18. We're paediatric specialists. We have personnel, infrastructure, all the resources we need to manage these children where they may not. So firstly, I'd like to thank them for all the work that they do. Some of the resources I find really useful is the ATS guide from the triage education kit so the Australasian triage guideline scale uh, education kit 
I find that there, there's two or three pages in that entire package that is dedicated to pediatrics and I'm sure that hopefully we have them uh, laminated and printed out and put on to your, um, you know, in your triage. I also um, quite like the pediatric triangle. It's especially useful for people who are not used to peds and it's ex- pretty much what I just explained before. It's, it's assessing their appearance, their circulation and their work of breathing and that's the fundamentals of pediatric assessment and that's what you build from. Also, uh, a resource, don't forget the bubbles, do have a fantastic link towards that as well. And also, if you're wanting to know a little bit more in-depth and specialties, we have to thank you, Virginia, for making all being part of making all of those um, webinars that we have in our email link, Outreach Education. Those are fantastic. They have a wide range of common pediatric presentations. So if you're wanting to know a little bit more about those, they're all up on the internet, and um, I'm sure we can attach those links to the description. Thanks, Tyler, <laughs> and thanks there for the little uh, plug of the webinars. But as you highlighted, I'll just recap briefly before we move on to you, Kim. So chapter eight of the ETEC and the Australasian Triage Scale uh, booklet is what Tyler is referring to and that it really is an excellent resource isn't it, that we've got laminated and we would highly recommend in your facilities. Uh, Kim, anything else that you would like to add in terms of a resource? Yeah, so we um, do have the laminated ATS um, paediatric discriminator table and that's just located in all our triage base so that staff can use and, and Tyler's aware of that and that's really beneficial for staff um, and even I would, with experience, would refer to that when triaging paediatric patients. Um, another useful technique that I found that is beneficial is, um, you know, that peer review. So chatting with colleagues and starting discussions around interesting triage presentations or challenging decisions um, that you may have experienced I think that triage is such an autonomous role and really you know encouraging that peer review and discussion with colleagues can really strengthen our learning opportunities um, for everyone I couldn't agree more, Kim, and I can see you nodding too, Tyler. I think it's just such a great point. I think it doesn't sometimes matter how many years you've been triaging or how many years of experience you think you have. Nothing beats just asking a colleague and having an open conversation about it and coming to a conclusion together. So let's move on to our third and final question, which is a bit of a long question, but that's why we're here. So Kim, in paediatrics, we often have the valuable resource of parents and guardians who present with their child to an ED. And so I'm wondering what your message you might give to nurses about parents as a resource. You know, sometimes I think that the communication that we have with parents and guardians from the moment that they present can really impact their ED journey and beyond. I'm also aware that for many facilities, they do not have a triage assessment nurse or other resources for ongoing assessments. Yes, I agree, Virginia. Parents are very often an invaluable um, resource for information, but also, you know, to ensure that ongoing care and observation, you know, happens while their child is in the ED waiting room. Um, Triage assessment, I suppose, is required to be quite timely. So we get two to five minutes. um, And in that time, I always try and introduce myself to the parents and listen to the presenting complaint um, without judgment. To ensure that I stay within time, I often tell the parents that I now need to ask a couple of questions around, like specific questions around why their child is presented today. And I tend to lead those questions and they tend to be quite focused and targeted around the current presentation. The other technique that I think has served me well is that if a child presents with a chronic illness or condition um, that I may not have heard of or be familiar with, I will often tell the parents, you know, I'll explain to them, you know, sorry, I'm not familiar with that condition. 
can you tell me what happens when they're unwell and what happens when they present to the ED and are there any specific risks um, that are associated with this exacerbation um, of their condition? I've been working in paediatric ED for a long time and have advanced training in paediatrics and critical care but I mean I absolutely acknowledge that I don't know everything but the person that will know everything will be the parent or guardian so um, I really have never encountered a negative response to this disclosure and um, only ever really a look of relief. Um, I suppose the other positive aspect parent or guardian in the ED is that they are you know with the child and observing the child while they wait which is quite reassuring ed can be very unpredictable and unfortunately you know sometimes parents need to wait for much longer than recommended times and i would always try and utilize the parents and guardian um like asking them to return to the triage desk if for reassessment if they have concerns um, or watch out for specific signs that i might be concerned about and then that way then you know we can reassess the child and get them seen um, a little bit quicker if need be Thank you, Kim, and I and I think you've just highlighted on some great points there about that openness and the honesty with the conversations that we have with parents and guardians as soon as they arrive. And Tyler, I wonder if you have something that you'd like to add. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that we need to be incredibly transparent. My mantra is don't tell the parent what they want to hear, tell them what's going to happen. You'll get much more out of that. So, you know, don't promise things that you can't, you know, don't fudge the waiting times if it's going to be five hours let them know from the get-go so that you're essentially resetting their expectations I also think that we should be acknowledging that it takes a lot for somebody to put their child in a car and bring them to emergency department and they're obviously incredibly stressed so it's allowing them to essentially hand over the care or telling us what they're concerned about and it's acknowledging their concern even though we are incredibly experienced and we we may know straight away that the child is okay it's acknowledging that that could be really scary for them because we have to remember that their parents windows could be limited it might be the first viral illness that their child's ever experienced before for us that might be a three out of ten for them it might be a ten out of ten we just have to acknowledge that could be the first time they've ever brought their child in so this is the sickest they've ever been i think a way to get around that is um reassurance and going through your assessment with the parent and giving them really simple tips and tricks about what you're looking for of why you're happy so it's things about alertness it's things about good hydration and the fact that they might not be working at all and their respiration rate is looking okay often parents come in thinking that one of the few jobs that they can do is feed and drink and they say they've had nothing at all well a phrase I like to use is that well, whatever you're doing your child wouldn't look as well if you weren't so you're doing a fantastic job keep going because your child looks really well right now if there's any deterioration in your child's journey while in the waiting room or in our department we'll make sure we escalate no matter how busy we are uh, if you need to be seen you will be but it's resetting that expectation and potentially around also just some of those uh, they may get advice from a GP that might say that they'll get blood tests or imaging that may not happen so it's just being really open and honest. Thank you Tyler and again just some fantastic points there and I think just to recap briefly on that particular point respect for the parent and the guardian that's come in openness and honesty and transparency and communication and really encourage them to feel like they can come back up 
and ask you. You don't want to send that family out to the waiting room, waiting there thinking that they just can't come and ask you again um, mm. if something has changed or worried. And I think that's a message that we all agree that we really want parents to feel um, is comfortable coming back up to ask for reassessment. So we're drawing to the conclusion of our podcast. So thank you very much for coming today. And I thought I would just do a, two quick little quick fire questions and I'll keep it just to two. I think I had three, but we'll, we'll wrap these things up. So Kim and Tyler, what would be your top tips for taking a blood pressure on a child? Well, I think distraction. <laughs> it's, it comes with experience, but also letting them know you're going to put a little uh, cuff on their arm and it might mm. pump up. So you're letting them know, but then also talking to them using things like the Wiggles or yeah. Peppa Pig. And if they're old enough, you can talk to them about brothers and sisters and yep. using pets. But to be honest, if the kid won't let you, let you do it, you just have to document why. Yeah, so true. <laughs> and Kim, for yourself? I try and do it last. Yeah, yes. um, I think yep. it can be a little bit painful and, yes. and a bit scary for some kids. So, yep, yep I'll do it as the last observation. Yep. Fantastic. <laughs> and um, do either of you have a key piece of distraction paraphernalia that you carry on you that is helpful for distracting children? I used to yeah. uh, and I lost it. Um, <laughs> but no, I feel like I um, have been working enough in paediatrics that I... Uh, I don't need to use it anymore, but we do have bubbles around the department and uh, you just have to get skilled at making sure you're waving them around because we can't blow on them anymore. Yeah, that's so true. That's so true. That's so true. Yeah. Uh, Kim? Uh, something that I have on me that I would use would be a pen torch. And I use this a triage quite a lot because I probably don't have anything else to hand. Yeah. Um, but if you place it on your finger, it will turn your finger pink. Yeah. And honestly, children love it. That is a great tip. And I think a pen torch is something that triage nurses all carry on them. So I think that's fantastic. So thank you very much, Kim and Tyler, for our chat today. Uh, some key points that I've taken away from our discussion. Uh, beware the child that isn't walking who can't walk unaided or can't sit up unaided and who is just generally very disinterested in surrounds. Perhaps have a piece of distraction for paraphernalia on you uh, to help get you through your assessment. And using your resources, trusting your gut, being open to having the conversations with the parents, the guardians and also with your colleagues if you are unsure about what triage category you are going to give the child that you're triaging. So thanks very much. Thanks, Jen. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Please view the description section below for more information on this topic. The Education Hub is a collaboration between the Royal Children's Hospital and the University of Melbourne Department of Paediatrics and funded by the RCH Foundation.